There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Mothership of All DSR Podcasts, our Wednesday podcast, in which we look at the world, and we do so with some of our longest-standing, most expert and thoughtful friends. That, of course, includes Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing, Rosa? How are you doing, David? I'm, I'm depressed because the world is depressing, but other than that, I'm fine. Um, well, uh, let's see if we can work on that. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to be that helpful. Uh, but in that vein, we do have with us the um, ever-ebullient Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? Well, although I share Rose's suicidal impulses. Well, I don't know if uh, our guest today is going to help you much there in that regard, but I am delighted that we are joined today by Aaron David Miller, who's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Between 1978 and 2003, um, Aaron served at the State Department as a historian, an analyst, a negotiator, and an advisor to Republican and Democratic secretaries of state as one of the country's leading experts on the Middle East, and and for that reason, I am especially glad to have him here. I will note also before I welcome him that for those of you who are listening to this before Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m., you may want to hear Aaron in conversation with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. This is part of his Carnegie Connect series of conversations, which you can access online. They are always extremely good, and Ehud Barak is an extremely um, thoughtful and independent thinker. Welcome, Aaron. David, thanks so much. I I intend to follow uh, the tradition of being annoyingly negative. Annoyingly negative. Well, well, uh, I I suppose that's what we can expect um, from all of you. Fortunately, I think we are also going to be joined in the not-too-distant future by Dr. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm here, I'm popped here. onto our screen exactly on time. Uh, and who, even in the darkest of times, wears the tear of optimism here. 
at Deep State Radio. She's holding it over her head right now. Welcome, Corey. It is such a pleasure to have the chance to learn from Aaron and all of our usual Deep State Radio nerds. Um, well, there you go. See, the, the discussion has been elevated already by Corey's positive attitude. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, and I think I, I, I'd like to sort of handle handle our discussion um, in the following way. Uh, obviously, momentous events have occurred over the past week in Israel, in Gaza, with regard to the entire Middle East region and the United States. Uh, and because they are so momentous, what I'd like to do is start with perhaps a minute or two from each of you on what your thoughts about it are. Um, and then what I'd like to do, uh, since we have an expert in the region with us, is turn to Rosa and Ed and Corey, perhaps, for a question that can turn into a broader conversation, uh, in each case with Aaron, uh, and then we'll take it from there. But uh, Aaron, since you're our guest, let me start and ask you for your, your, your overview of the significance of what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, a few data points. Um, and we can argue about whether this intelligence failure was more profound than the one that occurred in October of 73. I think it is in the sense that it involved civilians uh, rather than uh, an attack against the military. Um, it is the that first day, October 7, um, more Jews were killed on that single day than on any day since the end of the Nazi Holocaust. Number two. It is the clearly the largest uh, terror attack, carefully planned military operation by Hamas, with or without Iranian help, uh, remains to be conclusively determined. But I think it was designed by Hamas to do several things. Number one, demonstrate the centrality of the Palestinian issue uh, to a world that seems willing to bypass it and go for things like Israeli-Saudi normalization. Number two, demonstrate that at the center of the Palestinian issue stands Hamas. You want your hostages back? You talk to Hamas, not Abbas. You want quiet on your southern border? You talk to Hamas, not Abbas. And finally, I think it was a willful, purposeful, intentional effort, drawing a page out of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, to kill indiscriminately, raping women, shooting female soldiers while they slept, decapitating babies. All of this was designed to demonstrate that Hamas has the capacity to disrupt, I don't know what Clinton said, the quiet miracle of a normal life, but it was designed basically for that purpose. This was not a bunch of hothead Palestinian gunmen running amok with no mission. That was a central objective. And it is going to produce, final comment, depending on whom you believe and what your view is of the capacity to quote uh, numerous Israeli officials in the last 24 hours, a quote, new reality, end quote, uh, in Gaza. What that means is hard to say. Um, the unity government that will be assembled, which is the only piece of good news since October 7th. Bringing in Benny Gantz, Gotti Eisenkot, Chiefs of Staff, Defense Minister, as a counter to extremist ministers. The judicial overhaul is dead, both by coalition agreement. No legislation can be passed with, except if it pertains to the prosecution of a war. And I suspect this national unity government will last 
or some other formulation of it uh, is going to endure. Last point, I hate making predictions, but if you ask me whether Benjamin Netanyahu will be the prime minister of Israel next year at this time, I would say almost conclusively no. It's interesting to note, in your, I've heard other people predict this as well, that Hamas has achieved in one day what 280,000 Israelis in the streets could not achieve in six months, which is the end of the judicial reforms of Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, and very likely the end of the prime ministership of Benjamin Netanyahu. Corey, how about you next? So, um, Aaron, I wonder, one of the things I, I, since I am not expert on the region, I'm struggling to understand is how representative is Hamas of Palestinians? I know they got elected in Gaza in 2006 and there haven't been elections. How should we understand the broader Palestinian experience now? You know, it's, it's a great question. I think it's impossible to answer. Palestinian national movement right now looks like Noah's Ark. Uh, there are two of everything, two constitutions, two sets of security services, two statelets, two sets of patrons, two visions of where Palestine is and what it's supposed to be. I asked a Palestinian in the 80s why they supported Yasser Arafat, searching for uh, a link to why Americans of varied persuasions vote for Donald Trump. And the answer was extraordinary. Arafat is a stone that I throw at the Israelis every day. Stone, I throw at the Israelis every day. I think there's a large measure of that with respect to Hamas. Armed struggle, making the Israelis suffer, managing Gaza poorly. I'm sure if they had their druthers, Palestinians would vote not for Mahmoud Abbas, but for some other leader other than Hamas and some other way of life, try to convert Gaza from the open-air prison that it is. I don't know if it'll ever be Singapore and the Mediterranean, but those people deserve much better than what their Palestinian leaders and the Israelis, who played a key role in, in their misery, um, deserve. Can I ask one no, more no. question, David? Well, you did one. That's two. But keep going. You know, sure. <laughs> ask another question. My other question is, um, how does the geometry of the new Israeli government work? Are the most extremist members of the cabinet, do they remain in place? Do they remain responsible for policy, even if legislation can't be advanced? How should I understand that? Fascinating question. Uh, he's added uh, Benny Gantz, Gadi Azenkrut. Um, he's not replaced anyone. And it remains to be seen the degree to which Gantz and Eisenberg, but Gantz in particular, former defense minister, former chief of staff, former victim of Netanyahu's machinations when he was cheated out of his turn at the rotation back in 2020, despite the fact that they had agreement, what kind of influence they'll have on the extremists. Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir, who have large budgets, real authority, and are wreaking havoc uh, with Israeli policy on the West Bank. They're going to be focused on the war, frankly, um, particularly if there's a second front opening up or opened up in the north. So I suspect uh, Netanyahu, Hedger that he is, will not want to alienate 
his extreme ministers, even while he adds to his government. Uh, let me let me turn now to Ed. I want to recommend that everybody read uh, Ed's column in the Financial Times today. Uh, it is typically thoughtful, but I think it's especially thoughtful because it agrees exactly with what my column in the Daily Beast said the day before, uh, which I see as a sign of real wisdom. Um, but I, I think both of us were saying, um, uh, you know, it's, it's good the President Biden is supporting the Israelis. It would also be good to make sure that there is restraint. Ed. Uh, yes. Um, uh, uh, great minds thinking alike. Well, mine, mine is not great, but yours is, David. Um, uh, I have, I mean, uh, let me make a point, but then also ask Aaron a question. Um, probably, I think there's no doubt, and I'm not an expert um, uh, uh, by any means in this region, um, but I think there's no doubt that Israel will be able to, in some form or another, defeat, if not fully demolish, the Hamas military leadership in the coming weeks but that it's quite plausible it will lose the politics. I mean, if if Hamas's aim is to place the Palestinian issue firmly back on the world's agenda, then it's already victorious. Uh, and in spite of the absolutely bestial, brutal methods it's used, it has placed it back on the front burner for the first time in many, many years. And I don't think that's going to go away. So my question for, for Aaron and seeing the silver lining that, you know, Bibi's judicial reforms are over, that this sort of weird, unintended um, defense of Israeli democracy going on um, or, or boost to Israeli democracy um, from this is after Netanyahu who, because you would expect in extreme circumstances like this with Israelis feeling very insecure that generally the politics will switch towards reaction. So does this mean people to Netanyahu's right will benefit or it, is it more complicated than that? I think it's a tad more complicated. Uh, I, I've been predicting for a while a course correction to what I call the center right, a group of Israeli pals drawn from very, even from Likud, partly, who have a, a a profound faith in the democratic system, the independence of the judiciary, but who are very tough when it comes to national security issues, particularly dealing with Palestinians in Gaza and on the West Bank. If that course correction comes, I think that um, it, it could actually open up an opportunity um, to make some progress. Um, but it's all, it's all too fraught right now and all too certain. You know, I could paint you a picture probably better placed in a galaxy far, far away on a set of conditions in which a post-Hamas Gaza would actually pave the way for um, progress on the Palestinian issue and even Israeli-Saudi normalization in the wake of this. But that would require the sun, the moon, and the stars to align perfectly in the international community led by the United States with full buy-in from the government of Israel. Um, to create what the Israelis mean, or maybe what they don't mean, by a new reality. So do, do you mind if I ask a follow-up question, David? Of course. Um, I mean, Corey did. I Corey, mean, you're all abusing the privilege, so go ahead. Corey set, set uh, uh, an abusive precedent, which I'm happily You're following. welcome for my service. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to ask 10 questions. Uh, 
So well, yeah, okay, we're going to make it three each, and you know, then we're all doomed. Um, so Aaron, you you mentioned stars aligning. One of those stars is, of course, the president of the United States, Biden. To what degree do you think Biden shares the analysis that um, that David sketched out that that David and I have put forward? Um, that um, that a military victory for Israel is a political victory for Hamas. I want to add something to that that question, Aaron, as as you're considering it, because I found it quite interesting. In fact, um, it evokes one of the guys that you worked for. I remember somebody who worked for Colin Powell once said his great strength as a leader is that you know everybody sees in him what they want to see in him, and and in this particular case. I've seen the hard right in Israel going, see, Biden stood behind us and he is essentially backing us no matter what we do. And I've seen people who are more progressive here in the United States say, see, Biden is calling for restraint in international law. So it looks like he's sort of, you know, both sides are embracing him, but, you know, it's going to be hard for him to live up to both. Right. I think that's a very, it's like he's a Rorschach test. I think that's a very wise comment. I mean, you know, I like alliteration. So my view is this, the president's persona and the presidential model here is not Barack Obama, it's Bill Clinton, even though they're a generation apart. Biden's commitment to Israel, his love of Israel, love of Israel is deeply ingrained in his political and emotional DNA. He is not looking for a fight with Netanyahu. Look at the last 10 months of his government's reaction to the most extreme fundamentalist government in, his, in the history of the state of Israel, aside from where he's going to, he saw Netanyahu in New York instead of Washington. By the way, this guarantees, Gaza guarantees a second Netanyahu meeting at the White House by the end of the year. Um, so the persona, his persona rules out, in my judgment, being tough with Israel. The politics, the, the second P, rules it out. Because the Republican Party is the Israel right or wrong party. The Democratic Party is divided. But Biden cannot afford, even though Gaza will not change a single vote, God, uh, he cannot afford to be painted as an adversary of Israel, which means in these circumstances, given the horrors that Hamas have, has inflicted, there's no way he's going to be tough with Israel. And finally, the third P is policy. There are two issues out there. One's a crisis, how to deal with Iran, and the other's an opportunity, an Israeli-Saudi deal. Both of them compel any U.S. president to have a functional relationship with the state of Israel. So for persona, politics, and policy, I think, David, where Biden comes down is very much in the center. He is not looking to and does not want a fight with this Israeli prime minister. Particularly now, so I wouldn't expect. I just wouldn't expect a lot of, a lot of um, talk about restraint. At least now, we'll see how the operation unfolds and how the administration reacts to the loss of life on the Palestinian. Yeah, which will undoubtedly mount. I'm done talking, by the way, because uh, I really need to hear from. Uh, on broader, wider issues than this. Well, I, you know, you, you may say that, but we're entering the section of the program that we call 20 Questions with Rosa Brooks, where she... Uh, <laughs> she uh, animal, vegetable, or, or mineral? Sorry. That's what I want to know. Um, 
you know, ah, gosh, it's been such a agonizing and depressing few days. And, and I was really reminded of, of 9-11, you know, and I, one of my memories from that terrible, terrible day was, uh, I was, I was teaching at the University of Virginia law school at the time and classes were all canceled and, and, you know, cell phones couldn't get through to New York and DC. And, and finally, a several of my colleagues and I went out for lunch and I remember our lunchtime conversation just just sort of saying to each other you know and this is as everybody had been watching these just unspeakably awful footage of you know bodies jumping out of the World Trade Center and just so much death and suffering and and you know and, but just saying to each other this is kind of it for the U.S. politically, you know, this, we're not going to be able to come back from this in terms of whatever fragile consensus in the U.S. exists to continue to advance civil liberties, uh, to fight for human rights, uh, et cetera. Um, like it's sort of over. Um, and of course, what ended up happening, I think was, was a little more complicated than that, but on some fairly fundamental level, I think that was that was true, right? I, I don't know that we would be where we are now politically in the United States had it not been for 9-11. Um, I think the the sort of the level of, of fear um, that it generated uh, in, in Americans, the the willingness to view uh, to, to frame human rights, civil liberties as as somehow uh, you could only you could only have human rights and civil liberties if you if you sacrificed security. The willingness to frame it that way, to see it that way, I think has has unfortunately that has not gone away. Um, and I think there are so many ways, both in terms of our foreign policy and in terms of our domestic politics, in which we're still living in that world with with a set of of hopes that were shattered by 9-11 hopes and, and the, the bitter partisan divisions that we now see, the support for Donald Trump that we now see. I'm not sure we would be there um, if 9-11 hadn't happened. And I couldn't help as I, you know, looking at this week's occurrences in Israel and Gaza have the same feeling um, that this is it, you know, um, the notion I, I, and I'm curious both to know your take on this, Aaron, but also everybody else's take on the both the U.S. politics piece as well. You know, my sense is that the pro-democracy, pro-human rights movement in, in Israel is kind of finished, at least for now, right? I mean, I don't I don't see everybody sort of rallying around, uh, oh, gee whiz, we need to come up with some kind of better negotiated solution that, that respects Palestinian aspirations. I think I think you know everybody right now is in absolutely in shock and, and 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 it's it's they're frightened they're horrified as they as they obviously should be by Hamas's actions which are horrifying and appalling um and it's you can see how the discourse is breaking down um in this country as well as around the world it very much turns into a you're with us or you're against us there is no room for nuance you know there there is you know even saying quite moderate things like what you said a few minutes ago Aaron about you know, Israel to, is partially the author of its own miseries, uh, you know, which, which isn't in any way to justify or excuse uh, Hamas's atrocities and terrorism. But, but even saying that 
it, you know, is getting framed as, oh, well, you are excusing and justifying Hamas. Um, and, and I think the pressure on politicians in this worldwide and, and in this country in particular, we've already seen is to, we don't want to hear, we don't want to hear about nuance. We don't want to hear any critiques of Israeli government, political decisions, et cetera. Um, all we want right now is to hear you say, um, Israel right or wrong. And I worry about how this will play out, not only in terms of the, the Palestinian people who, you know, there, there does seem to be plenty of evidence that if they had their choice, Hamas <laughs> would not be it. You know, there haven't been elections in Israel, in, in Gaza for, for years, for uh, almost two decades, I think now. Um, and it's pretty clear that most ordinary Palestinians really wish they had better choices, just as most Americans really wish we had better choices. Um, but I think they're not going to get better choices. Uh, and as usual, it's going to be ordinary Palestinian civilians who are, who are going to get screwed within Gaza, just as is ordinary Israeli civilians who are getting who are getting screwed. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be bad for the Palestinians. I'm boggled in some ways by Hamas's sort of theory of the case here, um, other than just being spoilers, which obviously that's that's working out pretty well. Um, but but it's hard to see what positive outcome they imagine they're going to get from from these atrocities. Um, and in the U.S., I, I think I can't see this helping Biden. Um, I think that uh, we already see the the Republicans lining up to say, "Aha, you know your softness on Iran and your your criticisms and failure to be one hundred percent." in in Bibi's corner with Israel uh, has enabled these horrors and and he's going to be hit hard with that plus plus just the automatic tendency even when there's not much you know even when it's got nothing to do with US actions to blame whoever's president for just whatever bad stuff around the world happens while they're president you know i think this is going to hurt biden further inflame partisan tensions in the US uh etc so i just phew, I don't see anything good coming out of this, and I would love to have you all persuade me that this is unduly pessimistic. I, I, I would try. Um, uh, you know, if Pithy and the Oracle of Delphi were on the show, she that was last week. Well, last week, reading, we <laughs> reading the best of coding trails and coffee grinds could not divine the future. I would just ask you a question, Rosie, because I think in many respects, Israel is Mars and America is Venus. Can you imagine a political movement in the United States, 330 million people, that would generate 41 weeks of massive protests out in the streets, a cross-section of American society including religious Americans, secular Americans, lefty Americans, righty Americans, professionals, middle class, doctors, lawyers, ex-government officials of hardline parties, liberal parties, demonstrating peacefully for 41 weeks in a row over the question, the central question, which the demonstrators have answered, what kind of society are we really? Are we a, in our own view, 
Israel's a preferential democracy, let's be clear. It is not a democracy for all of its citizens. Two million Palestinians of Israel suffer economic and social discrimination. I can't. I wrote a piece with my son, what America could learn from, what Israel could, what America could learn from Israeli protests. We wrote it, but I didn't believe it. That's, that, that question, if you can answer that question, yes, then you've brightened my day and put us on a pathway of potential redemption for the Republic. The Israelis have answered that question already. And it was not about human rights for the Palestinians. Let's concede that. It's not about the occupation. It was about Israeli democracy for Jews. I can't imagine a situation in this country. I just can't. And that's what gives me hope. Uh, in Israel. Netanyahu has ruled this country longer than any other. He's the longest governing prime minister in the history of the state of Israel. He will leave. He's presided over two debacles. He will be blamed. See the movie Golda. The Agronaut Commission after 73 pinned us all on the security, intelligence, and military elites. They let Golda off. The public held her to account, and she was forced from office. With Netanyahu gone, a lot opens up in terms of possible combinations of parties and politics in Israel. So I'm depressed, Rosa, because I can see the Israelis actually coming out of this. I, I, I don't know where, how we get out. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I, for a moment there, I was thinking we had actually risen to the challenge because as horrific as the events of the past week have been, and as horrific as the events of the next several weeks are likely to be, we've also concluded that it's possible that a consequence of these events is the end of Netanyahu's attacks on democracy, um, potentially a more sensible government in Israel, potentially some kind of continuation based on those 41 weeks of protests, a return of the issue of the Palestinians to the center of the Middle East um, discussion. Uh, which, at least in my view, is an important uh, dimension, um, and a recognition that the President of the United States, um, as a consequence of his experience, um, is doing a good job and U.S. standing is improving. Um, having said that, yes, there's a problem of what happens here in the United States. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, yes, uh there are the potentials for this to spread. I'd like to talk about some of those uh, potential issues in a moment, but this is the point in the podcast where we stop and we say to everybody who's not a member, you should be a member because if you're a member, then you get to listen to the whole podcast and not just the first two thirds of it. And it's only $5 a month. You go to the dsrnetwork.com, you click on membership, and you get to hear this kind of stuff. And if you think about what we've been doing, what you've been hearing from us over the past um, couple of days in response to this, whether it's this discussion or our discussion with uh, Admiral Winnefeld and Mark Polymeropoulos about the intelligence implications of this on Monday or the discussion with Alan Pincus and Rula Jebrial 
um, sort of providing an on the ground perspective on this on Monday or, or, or this discussion or the others, you'll see there's value to getting all of the content. And for only $5 a month, helping us to support getting that content is also uh, a bargain, I think. So if you're not a member, got to say bye-bye now. If you are a member, we say stand by now.